Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we have a treat for you here this week because uh, we are talking to an expert. We're talking to a man who definitely knows his way around innovation, around the history of innovation, and uh, and how we work as a, an innovative species. This man, he goes by the name of Stephen Johnson. He has a book out called How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World. He has a corresponding PBS series, which airs on Wednesdays from October 15th through November 12th at 10, 9 central. So we've talked about him before. Stephen Johnson has written a bunch of books, and you may be familiar with him already uh, with his TED Talk, which is called Where Good Ideas Come From. And it is a must-see if you haven't already. This is the coffee house talk for those of you who just have kind of a an in and out uh, familiarity with the various TED talks of the past. This is the one that was like people stopped drinking beer, they started drinking coffee and hanging out in coffee houses, and they started getting all these crazy ideas. Their ideas started breeding with one another and producing hybrid ideas, and that this is kind of the uh, the soup of innovation. Yeah, that, which kind of took us out of the dark ages and into. The Enlightenment. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he weaves together all of these uh, sort of what you would think are disparate topics or areas, and he creates this cohesive narrative of how things came to be. And, and he is an excellent storyteller and an excellent science journalist. Yes. Now, this book, uh, How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World, uh, six, six innovations, the chapter titles are Glass, Cold, Sound, Clean, Time, and Light. And... Uh, what I love about this book is that it makes me think of those, uh, you know, those transparencies that you would find in uh, in biology and anatomy textbooks. You know, where uh, you would be uh, one transparency would be uh, the circulatory system of an organism, and then you have another transparency that's the digestive system, uh, etc. All these different layers, and you layer them on top and on top, and, and all together they give you this kind of complex view of the organism itself. Well, I I find that books like this, and and this book in particular, it's kind of like like each chapter, like the glass chapter is kind of one transparency over the body of history, particularly the body of, of history when seen uh, in, in terms of technological innovation. And each one of those transparencies on its own is fascinating. You know, you look at the circulatory mm-hmm. system, you say, well, the, the human circulatory system is in and of itself a very fascinating system and well worthy of study. And so in this book, Johnson is is basically taking different transparencies from the history of innovation and saying, well, just, just look at the story, just look at the history of say, um, the light bulb in our quest for light mm-hmm. and, and look at how this story of innovation colors the the overall history of, of human innovation. Yeah, and I love that about his ability to reframe our understanding of these really big, meaty topics like uh, light, right, or even time. In, in one aspect of it, he talks about how time was just all over the place. You know, mm-hmm. you could go from one city to another and you'd be five minutes ahead or ten minutes behind and so on and so forth. And that's how we largely sort of went along until the 1870s when William Allen created standardized time zones. And all of a sudden you could sync up not just trains, but all sorts of innovations sprung from that to the point where we really could not disseminate information or share our knowledge um, or, you know, air things without um, creating this sort of cohesive understanding uh, or 
all of us being on the same page of time. And that's just one tiny little aspect that he talks about when considering the entire history of time and how we've tried to bottle it. Indeed, that's a great chapter. And, and, and this, this overall, this book is a, just a great volume. Well worth picking up. Uh, very readable. Uh, very much a, a book for the, you know, the everyday person who's just interested in how these different inventions and how these great ideas, um, have, have changed the world. And, you know, and how sometimes they, they spring off in just unforeseen directions. Yeah, and uh, Stephen Johnson will talk a little bit more about this in the interview that we're about to play. We thought you guys would really like to get a little bit more uh, information about his work, his process, and uh, dive into a little bit more of the book. So without uh, any further ado, here is our interview with Stephen Johnson. And remember that his PBS series, How We Got to Now, airs on PBS on Wednesdays, and that's 10 Eastern, 9 Central. In your book, you write about how Manuel DeLanda's book, War in the Age of Intelligent Machine, formed your perspective-bending approach to history. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, well, we tend to tell uh, historical stories in, in terms of, you know, kind of great leaders, political leaders, spiritual leaders, military leaders. It's, it's, it you know, it tends to be a very kind of human-centered view of the world. And even when we talk about the history of invention, we often talk about the great inventors and and the geniuses that they were and how their great ideas changed the world. And what DeLanda was suggesting in that book that I read many, many years ago as a grad student in my early 20s, um, it's taken me 23 years to fully digest what he was saying, is that there's another way of looking at, at the history of human society, which is in a sense the kind of machine's eye view of it all. Um, and to look not at how people change the world, but how th- these technologies, these machines, these objects um, changed us. And he, he imagined if you know if you somehow in the future and you had a robot historian, you know we got to a level of artificial intelligence and a, and a robot set out to tell the history of the last thousand years, that robot would tell a very different story. It would be all the different strains in kind of historical progress that were leading towards you know, <laughs> intelligent <laughs> computers, um, and that certain elements in human history would loom large in that telling um, that might not uh, loom quite as large in uh, in our traditional accounts. So that's what how we got to now is, is, in a sense, trying to do. It's trying to talk about how all these breakthroughs and, and objects and, and technologies uh, change the way we live. What do you see as humanity's biggest misunderstanding when it comes to the nature of innovation, and does that misunderstanding pose a threat? I think part of the, the, the issue that we have when we think about innovation is that we tend to look at it a very kind of local way. So you see somebody trying to solve a specific problem in coming up with some new new you know solution, some new technology, and and oftentimes you know. People are very good at doing this. You know, they, they set out to figure out a way to, um, you know, cool down and dehumidify a room in the invention of air conditioning, for instance. And they do an excellent job of that. Um, they successfully manage to create these, like, nice interior temperatures that are very livable. But what we don't see and we don't anticipate are all the crazy um, kind of peripheral consequences of that invention. Uh, that gets set in motion because this new thing is in the world. And so with the invention of air conditioning, 
what that ends up triggering is this huge migration of people uh, to, you know, kind of very hot places like desert states or very, you know, tropical, um, jungly places that would normally not sustain big population bases. And, you know, the, the entire Sun Belt, for instance, is basically a creation of air conditioning technology. Um, and that itself then creates other, you know, kind of strange consequences where, like, for instance, people living in the desert have, you know, need for water. Um, that maybe we shouldn't really be living, you know, in cities of five million people in the middle middle of the desert. That that might actually not be a sustainable way to live. But air conditioning kind of made that possible for the first time. So we need to have this ability to kind of look at these secondary effects um, and not just look at the kind of direct problem being solved with each innovation. In your book, you uncover many of the unsung heroes of history, the people who aren't often touted or celebrated for contributing to humanity-changing inventions or innovations. So which one of those heroes are you most taken with? You know, there's so many. Uh, we, we really had a lot of fun uncovering these, these folks. I mean, you know, I, I, I think the whole story about Frederick Tudor and, and kind of inventing the ice trade at the beginning of the 19th century is an amazing one. Tudor himself was, was, seems like he was a bit of a jerk, but uh, but his whole process is amazing. So you know, he hits upon this idea that um, he could take large blocks of frozen lake water from New England lakes um, and ship them, ship these big blocks of ice down to the American South, to the Caribbean, and then eventually uh, to South America and even to India. Um, and, he's, and he has this idea, like, look, you know, ice is basically free in New England. Um, it's completely abundant and has kind of no, you can just go and take it. Um, but it's unbelievably rare. In fact, it was non-existent in the Caribbean. If you grew up in the Caribbean, you know, in the middle of the early 1900s or 1800s, you would have never seen ice your entire life. So he thought people are going to pay a fortune for this. And so he went through this whole elaborate process of figuring out how to get the blocks of ice to the Caribbean without it melting, which was interesting in and of itself. But the funniest thing is then he got there and <laughs> nobody wanted his ice. People were like, why, why, why would we want ice? We have been living here for 300 years without needing any ice and we've been fine. And so what would we do with that? And so he had to kind of convince them of the need for ice and that it was a really nice resource to have, to have things that were cold. And eventually he became, you know, a multimillionaire and, and ice was briefly the second biggest export in the United States after cotton. Um, so he was ultimately a success, but it's just a kind of a crazy story. What was the starting point of the book, that point at which you realized that you could create a cohesive collection of jaw-dropping moments to help reframe our understanding of human innovation? Well, I had written Where Good Ideas Come From, um, which, you know, is all about, in a way, the history of innovation, but not organized in terms of individual kind of objects. Uh, so it was about the kind of patterns and kind of lessons from innovative people and environments and, and communities. And uh, and so I knew, and that book had done well, and, and I knew that, you know, that you could, you could tell these stories from history and they could be kind of captivating um, if you figured out the right stories to tell and the right way to, right, right way to frame them. And then because of that book, uh, I got approached basically with this idea of turning it into a television show. Uh, a television series, and 
And so it really was a TV series first for PBS and, and BBC. And, and it was during the early conversations about the show that we came up with the idea of organizing it around six you know, objects, a clean glass of drinking water, a sound recording, uh, you know, artificial light. Um, and then once you had that kind of clarity, it was clear that it was, it was, uh, that the, that the episodes and then the chapters, as I wrote them in the book, um, were going to be fun because it just kind of gave it this structure that I, that I hadn't had in where good ideas come from. All right. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, more questions with Stephen Johnson. All right, we're back talking to Steven Johnson. A lot of times on the podcast, uh, we'll talk about habits or practices that we try to do, especially in terms of creativity. Do you have any specific habits or practices when you approach your work? Yeah, I have accumulated, you know, this is my ninth book, so I've, <laughs> I've accumulated a lot of little tricks. Actually, I wrote, uh, you can, you know, maybe link to it. I, I wrote a, um, a kind of series of little essays at, at Medium um, called The Writer's Room about some of my little tricks that I've accumulated over the years. But the, the biggest one is this, and, and it's a big theme of the books, actually. You know, I talk in the last two books, I talk quite a bit about this idea of the slow hunch, right, that the anti-eureka moment. Instead of moments of sudden clarity, sudden epiphany, breakthrough moments, most good ideas come into the world very slowly, and they start as hunches, and then, you know, they sometimes take two or three years or a decade to turn it into something that you can actually use in a really actionable way. And so the trick is to, like, preserve all of those hunches and keep them alive for as long as you can because, you know, that idea you had in 2008 might not really make sense in 2008, but it makes total sense in 2014 because something has changed or you've met someone who has another idea that kind of completes it or the technology has changed in the world and lets you kind of build on it or you understand something differently that you didn't understand before. So I've, I've been keeping this single document for the last, uh, it's almost 10 years now actually. Um, it was originally like a Word document and then it became a Google Doc so that I could just get to it. But it's one, one document and I just, in that document, I write down every single random idea I have for anything, whether it's like a, a talk or a startup or an episode or, a, you know, just like or an entire book or a magazine article or even I don't know where it's supposed to go, but it's just an idea that popped into my head. And I, and I, all, I write it down in that same place. I don't organize it at all. It's, that file is now about 70,000 words long. Um, so it's longer than all of my books. Um, I, it, that file is longer, like the longest book I've written is probably about 70,000 words. Everything else is shorter than that. Um, and what I try and do is I go back and reread it every six months or so. It takes a while. It takes like a book's length worth of time to reread all these things. But I try and go through and reread it because, you know, you're constantly finding things in your past where you're like, oh, right, I forgot I had that idea. That's such a good one. And now it makes total sense to do it here, you know. So that's one of the key kind of techniques that I've had over the years to keep that one, I call it my spark file, um, and uh, that's been incredibly helpful to me. So does looking back at that spreadsheet give you any insights into how you work or your thought process? Yeah, well, it really does. I mean, the cool thing is sometimes I go back and I'm rereading it, and I'll come across one little passage, and I'll be like, that was the night I came up with the idea for Invention of Air, my book. Like, a whole book 
came out of that little nugget that I had, you know, like that, that night. And here I am writing it down, you know, for the first time. So you can see the idea starting to take shape, which is really great. And it, and it just, you know, it encourages you. It makes you feel like, okay, you know, if I keep doing this, I'm going to generate another book idea in here, you know, sooner or later. Um, and then sometimes I <laughs> I read, you know, notes that I've written. And I'm like, how many glasses of wine that I had <laughs> when I wrote that down? I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, you know, some are, you see a lot of like dead ends and things that didn't work. But, you know, it, you know it's a big theme of, uh, of the show and the book, too, that there's, you know, productive failure. You know, you, you, you end up innovating more if you take a lot of risks and if you're constantly, like, experimenting with ideas, most, most of which aren't going to work out. Um, uh, but if you do that, eventually you'll start hitting, you know, hitting some that, that actually do work out. All right, so this one might be a bit of a doozy, but, but how does this understanding of innovation's history color our expectation for humanity's future, perhaps humanity's future beyond Earth? Well... I don't know about Beyond Earth. That's that's probably kind of above my pay grade to speculate on. But but um, but I think it should color our long view of human history in in a in a positive way, right? Um, and it, you know, one of the things that I tried to do in in this book, um, and in a way in my last book, Future Perfect, was to just remind people how much incredible progress we've made over the last particularly 200 years. Um, you know, I have a whole riff in, in the book and the show about the introduction of chlorination into drinking water and the crazy story behind that. And, and you know, that one little step, understanding that chlorine in small doses would be harmless to humans but could kill bacteria, that one little innovation, you know, ended up reducing infant mortality and child mortality by more than 50%. And... You know, just think about that. Like, I mean, think about how common infant and child mortality was, how high those numbers were in the developed world 150 years ago. I mean, it's just it is the single worst thing that you can imagine happening to you as a, as a parent, the loss of a child. And through, through all these kind of collaborative innovations over the last 150 years, we've taken something that was very common in the middle of the 19th century and made it very rare here at the beginning of the 21st. And... That's just extraordinary, and that is that is actually happening in the developing world even faster now than it happened in the developed world a hundred years ago. So yes, they're lagging behind us, but they're seeing even faster rates of, of of progress on something like that. So I think, look, we have big challenges that we have to confront. We have energy challenges, we have climate challenges, um, you know, we have inequality challenges, and, and things like that. But the track record of the last, you know, 200 to 300 years is an extraordinary one, and it's extraordinary all around the world. Um, it's not just anymore the story of, you know, the West with an impoverished um, third world. That is not what's happening. We're, we're seeing actually the developing world, you know, increase in its basic standards of living faster than any <coughs> human settlement uh, in history. So I think while we do have these problems, hopefully you look at you look at it from this angle and you see you know you see a lot of reasons for optimism. You've written about how innovation tends to keep tabs on itself and not unleash anything too terrible or harmful upon the world. But in terms of today's technology, which moves at a far faster pace than the current legal system, do you see a downside or a need to address the oversight system in place? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, this is the classic, you know, concern about why why we haven't detected any 
radio signals in, in like the SETI projects and things like that. And one of the arguments is that it, it may well be that civilizations that advance far enough to send out structured radio signals at some you know other planet are almost immediately uh, wiped out by some <laughs> self-destructive technology that follows the invention of radio. <laughs> um, which is the kind of the less optimistic view of what what happened, um, and I think we do have you know we live in a much more you know kind of connected world, and so if there were some kind of you know self replicating style biotechnology or nanotechnology, this is the kind of gray goo um, nightmare scenario that we would you know we we could unleash something that that, you know, was incredibly damaging to society, that that could be a risk. And, you know, I suppose, like, genetic meddling people are concerned about. Um, I think it would be really good, you know, to... We, we certainly need to have better systems for thinking about risk, and particularly for thinking about these unintended, unintended consequences in terms of risk. Um, I'm not sure if our existing kind of regulatory bodies are the best set up for that. I don't think, you know, government agencies do a particularly good job of thinking about that kind of risk, uh, but I'm not sure really what the alternative is. Um, it's one of the places where I think, and I'm not actually a big reader of this, but one of the places where I think science fiction is probably pretty healthy for the society, because basically science fiction authors just sit around and, like, imagine crazy alternate future scenarios based on, you know, projecting out from the present. And that that's a pretty healthy attitude because it sometimes helps us steer away from those things, right? You know, we we had fears about what 1984 would look like and we're able to kind of largely, for the most part, some of it came true, but some of it didn't, I think, partially because 1984 was such a powerful and evocative book. Um, so it made us worried about entering into that kind of state. Um, so I think in some ways the kind of the visionaries and the sci-fi authors may be as important to this kind of stuff as the, as the traditional regulators. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we will have more from Stephen. All right, we're back. Uh, more questions here with author Stephen Johnson. Uh, Stephen, what's the next topic that's going to keep you up at night, uh, making connections to that wider world? We're talking about doing another series, another season of this uh, show, which would have another book. Um, and so the question is, what would it, you know, what would be the uh, focus of it? I'd like to have it have a kind of a distinct focus, so it's not just like six more objects that change the world, you know. Um, so, and I'm really interested in, in leisure and in kind of recreation because that's a Another measure of progress is how much time we have to, to sit around, like, playing video games or going on vacations, <laughs> like our hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't have as much of. <laughs> um, and so it'd be interesting to do kind of a history, a connected history of, uh, of the things that we do for fun um, and how those things came into being. I think that would be pretty cool. Okay, if you don't mind indulging us, we have a couple of standard questions we like to ask people. So... Woolly mammoth, bring it back or don't bring it back. Well, I, I, you know, Stuart Brand is uh, my neighbor in California and old friend. So whatever Stuart is doing, I'm I'm in favor of. <laughs> I think it'd be cool to bring it back. 
<laughs> All right, uh, this question is fairly serious, and, and you don't have to answer it if you're uncomfortable. Um, but uh, we were just wondering, do you have a costume pick out for Halloween? Sadly, I'm going to be in London actually doing the UK uh, publication tour of the book. Um, and they don't really do Halloween over there quite the way we do in the U.S., so I will be just sitting in my hotel room ordering in room service. Uh, but my kids went out and got some very disturbing costumes the other day, so uh, they'll, be, they'll be in style here in, uh, in Brooklyn. All right, Stephen, well, thank you for talking with us. Uh, before we go, is there anything else you'd like listeners to know about the book and the series? You know, I think the one thing I'd say about the series um, is that it's re—it's a really fun show to watch with your kids, like to watch with like an 11-year-old, um, or if you're a kid, to watch with your parents. Because <laughs> it just—it really like it's pitched at this level. The book is slightly, you know, older. I think it would be hard for an 11-year-old to read the book, but um, the show is right in this sweet spot where I think most of the grown-ups will have not heard the stories. They're all we worked really hard to have you know, stories that you will not know and that will kind of blow your mind a little bit. Um, but at the same time, there's nothing in it that an 11-year-old won't get. And I think it's it's told in kind of a playful, fun way. It's not like your normal kind of history series. Um, so I think, it, I think it should be a, a good family show. All right, so there you have it, our chat with Stephen Johnson. Again, the book, How We Got to Now, the TV series, also, how we got to now. We highly recommend both. Yeah, airing on PBS Wednesdays. That's ten Eastern and nine Central. And uh, if you guys have any thoughts about this, I uh, hope that you send them our way. Indeed. And in the meantime, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is our mothership. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, all of our videos, all of our podcasts, as well as links out to the various social media accounts that we maintain. Yes, and you can contact us via email if you'd like. You can do that at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>